nobody knows what you are. I was concerned about going out into the world and doing something bigger than myself until someone smarter than myself made me realize there is nothing bigger than myself. If you don't believe, nobody else is going to believe. To get something you never had, you have to do something you never did. Yes, 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 ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another installment of the Paper Trails podcast by Inspire. I'm your boy, Shmarky, and today I'm joined by a special guest, uh, a very wholesome man um, who used to be an ex-ice hockey professional player, um, became a presenter, and now is running a non-profit organization that helps uh, essentially people... uh, either in corporate or non-corporate, with their mental health. Um, how was that? That's good, man. That's good. That's good. <laughs> it's it's yeah, good I mean, shorts. I don't want to yeah. cop out just yeah. say he helps people with mental health. I wanted yeah, to yeah. try to get a bit more nigree. But he goes by the name Nick Rothwell. Mm. How are you, Nick? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's a pleasure to have you on. Do you know what? I've been looking forward to this all day, Sharks. Yeah. Uh, since the moment I met you, you know, yeah. um, I've just felt really connected to to who you are and what you're doing. So, yeah, I'm it, really honored to be here and, yeah. and talk to you today. So, thank you. No, no, I appreciate it. And honestly, the, the pleasure is mine because I have to say, before we even start that, you're probably one of the most wholesome people I've met. Yeah. Um, there is There aren't that many people that when you meet instantly that show you a lot of... Um, a lot of love, really. Um, and obviously, we had that interview um, and where you gave me the Kaepernick, Kaepernick uh, jersey, yeah. which I still have. Yeah. Um, which was amazing. For even my friends were like surprised and, and shocked and, you know, and you was gracious enough to do that. So I was, I wanted to, to bring you on here because I feel like you've got a wealth of knowledge and information that you can basically give to to our audience that everyone can can benefit of and you are someone that you know everything that you say comes from a genuine place um because not only have you been in certain certain positions but on top of that you're caring enough to actually want to help other people uh which is obviously now what you've dedicated yourself to um but before we get into that i wanted to get into um just a bit of background uh we are essentially a book-based podcast, um, also about creativity as well. And I kind of want to also know, with every guest, their sort of first introduction to to reading or their first movie that they saw that maybe inspired them or um, first creative piece that they saw that was like, oh, wow, this is really engaging. Mm. Yeah, I, I a little bit of thought. It came quite quick to me that... Yeah. The first book that I ever really engaged with, I was probably, I had a, I struggled reading yeah. growing up. I got picked on from okay. a teacher once because uh, I, re- I read out loudly very poorly okay. and she, she made fun of me. So I, I kind of had this, you know, I didn't know at the time, you're yeah. just young, eight years old, but I had problems with my eyes and, and okay. I couldn't read as quickly as other children yeah. could read. So I had to read one word at a time. Okay, yeah. So my punctuation was poor. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't read too good. Yeah. <laughs> and um and uh but I do remember engaging with this book called the the I think it was called The Wizard Children of Flynn. Okay. And I remember reading it listening to ice hockey on the radio growing up mm. in Saskatoon. So I had the hockey on on the radio, yeah. on AM radio and yeah. it was the Saskatoon Blades playing. And I was reading this book and I remember like um, cutting in and out of the hockey to to go to music, and I remember uh, Toto and that song Africa would come on, 
And uh, while I was reading the book, and it was like just the two of them went really well together, and it really made the fantasy of being in this kind of forest okay, and being yeah. on this adventure come to life. So it was yeah. really cool that music uh, in the background while reading this book, yeah. that was the first you moment that I really... For yeah, because <laughs> I could get really into the words, and yeah, I, could, yeah, I could see them in my mind. Um, so that was the first real time that, that a book got me. But I, I ended up... Like I say, I struggled with reading, so I yeah. stayed away from it, and I really got into movies, and I liked mm. movies a lot because I could absorb that information a lot yeah, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you say was like the first movie that you really enjoyed, like the most memorable movie? You know, I think it was when I was getting a little bit older, and those gangster movies mm. um, started coming out, like Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I really got into all of that and Carlito's Way. Okay. Um, Al Pacino movies really, yeah, really got yeah. me. I, I kind of like that that gangster that, type that stuff. Five, yeah, like Godfather and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, funny enough, I haven't actually seen Goodfellas, but oh, you, I've, it's, I've it's, heard a, it's a it's a it's a multiple watch. You'll watch it a few times. A few Same times. thing with Carlito's Way. That was yeah. an underestimated one. Like a lot, not a lot of people talk about that. Yeah. but That was a really good movie too. Okay. Okay. And um, and did you say that? I mean, would you say that? Um, you kind of went back to books um, after, let's say, you know, obviously you said mm -hmm. you had problems reading, of course. Um, was there like a period where you tried to get over there, that? There, or was it? There was, I ignored it really. I, it's, and I stayed away from that. And ab yeah. academics were not my forte. Okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, w I got into high school in, in Canada. So that's, you know, around 13, 14 years old. And you, you go to high school from grade nine to grade 12. Yeah. And in grade nine, I really, really struggled. Mm. And I, but I, you see, I, I had these assets, like they were, they were coping mechanisms when yeah. you were young, growing up in a kind of a scary household. Sometimes my, my household was lo very loving, but it could be quite scary. Yeah. So I grew, I had these coping mechanisms from an early age where I could fantasize and I could manipulate, I could lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really had no sense of self. Mm. So I became a really good bullshitter okay. <laughs> and um and i and it took oh, a teacher yeah. in me uh, to go nick you know what i just see you're bsing your way through school yeah do you want to be that guy or i've heard, actually heard that you know your family was related to some pretty good writers mm. and i didn't know this but he, my dad was a teacher and he kind yeah. of found out this through 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 people talking and it just sparked a little thing in me that i was going to start to try to write yeah so I could write things like poetry yeah. and short stories quite easily. And yeah, that yeah. just sparked something in me, Sharks, yeah. that I think it just had a little awakening in me. And I started doing better at school. Mm. So it took one teacher yeah, just that to question me and to yeah. say, hey, buddy. This is and I'll never, ever forget this guy's name is yeah. Paul Jacoby. He's one of my all-time heroes of, yeah. uh, because he had the wherewithal to say, this is a child with, with some... Yeah. He could see that I was BSing, yeah. But he was like, "There's something inside of you too." And he spent time mm. with me, and he sparked that little bit yeah. of creativity. Tell you what, me. that's everything, especially with with teachers. So te teachers, mm. I don't think they even understand the level of power yeah. that they have um, and the ability to change a whole child's like perspective and like timeline and and everything that you know trajectory that he's gonna go on. Um, and I feel like. Even me, I had a teacher that was in the, uh, he was an LRC, like library mm -hmm. teacher. And um, I remember I just wrote like a little, it was a, a free period for us because we finished some of our subjects. So I was just writing in there. For, like I, I liked writing stories for, for a while. And then he read one of them um, that I actually, I actually threw away, but he 
took it out of the bin. Nice. But he didn't. He had no mm. idea. He just saw like loads of words. So he thought, okay, maybe this is someone's work. Let me not destroy okay. it. Yeah. So he kept it. And then afterwards, he was like, "Did you write this?" And then he was like, "Oh, I loved it." And he showed me like the scenes that he liked. And, and I was like, "Oh wow!" Because obviously, as a kid, you look up to the teachers and you think like they're the mm. smartest people in the world. So then, when he was saying, "I like this part where you wrote that," I was like, "Okay, maybe I should actually, you know, pursue it yeah. into this." And what that teacher did for you is clearly a testament of that, you know? I'll never forget it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the poems and stuff you used to write, well, what was the sort of subject on? I, I it? Could, I, it was observational stuff. Observational I could, stuff, I would yeah. go s- drive in, into the country because we drove quite young ages yeah. there, you know, I would take, take the car out and I'd drive in the prairies and I would, I would write about the prairies. I would write yeah. about, you know, trains going by and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, seagulls on a dump yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so just things that i would i would notice and i would just kind of get into what what the seagulls were thinking yeah. or you know what it would be like to be on a train going across canada yeah, and yeah. um so it's just observational, observational stuff. stuff and you know none of it rhymed <laughs> uh, which is cool because I, I don't think i could do rhyming poetry yeah. i'm not smart enough for that i know i could do anything <laughs> you, don't, you don't believe to achieve that. but uh what's it called because uh, you said um that you you had like you said the family member mm. um that you related to uh William again, Cooper William Cooper yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and I don't know if it's true but yeah. I know that my dad who's no longer with us he he said that there was claims of of our relation to William Cooper who is yeah. an 18th century poet and writer and lyric lyricist and yeah. who actually claimed relations to John Donne the yeah. another very famous English writer so there was meant to be some kind of lineage of, yeah. of writing in our family I, I don't know if it's true I can't prove it yeah, <laughs> it's just no, hearsay but it's really interesting to yeah. think that you know um perhaps because I did I, I I did I could visualize things yeah and I could put them if it was a slow little process I could put these 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 ideas on paper, on paper yeah. um and I don't know, you know, just, it just, it, it gave me some self-esteem. Yeah. I started to believe in myself and it gave me some confidence mm. so that I never really had as a teenager. Yeah. And it was that alongside of, of sport that I yeah. think really helped me get through high school. Of course. And that's the amazing thing I think also of writing, it gives you, it can give you that sense of perspective and, um, that not a lot of other mediums can, because at first it's a bit easier to get into because all you need is a pen and paper. Um, but on top of that, because it's all coming from inside you, everything that you do write come came from somewhere, you know. Um, and it's like you can really even understand yourself even through your writings and um, understand who you are, where you could go, um, much like your younger self, you know. And I was going to ask you, what advice would you give to, let's say, a young person that was a kid, essentially that was in your position, um at that age right after being ridiculed by a teacher yeah that's a tough one because i, I mean i was ridiculed when i was eight years old yeah. and i think i sat in that for several years yeah, yeah and yeah. It, it just took all it's sense of confidence well, yeah. of me. and i think that yeah no eight-year-old should should yeah, go through yeah, that yeah. with a teacher you know she she put me in a closet you know okay. and, and said i was stupid and yeah. um you know I, I carried that around with me for a long time mm. and i think that you know, teachers are overworked, they're, yeah. they're underpaid, they're very stressed, stressed course, positions, yeah. but you know, nobody should do that to an eight year old child. Yeah. And, um, I, I tried to think what advice I would give my old yeah. eight year old self. And it was, and I've, I've had to do this sharks through my healing, right. Mm. I've had to kind of hold that eight year old yeah, yeah, in yeah. those moments of fear of it, yeah. and, and say, you know, it's not your fault and you're a good kid mm. and you're smart. And I think that 
it's a journey that we go on. You know, these things, they, they help build some resiliency in, in people. I think that we need to nurture our children. Yeah. I'm now a new stepdad, and I've yeah. got three, three stepsons, and I'm learning parenting for the first yeah. time at 52 years old. And I just want to make sure that these children can experience yeah. life because it is in these moments that we grow, but yeah. also not create any harm. No, of course. You know, so did whatever this teacher did to me when I was eight years old, did it, did it build some resilience in me? Mm. Or, or was it negative impact? I don't yeah, know. You don't, yeah. But I just know as a as a as a fifty two year old man, I can mm. I can ho- hold that eight year old and say it's okay. Yeah. And then I can learn from that to know that this seven, eleven, and fourteen year old boys that yeah, I have in my yeah, life yeah. don't have to go through the same things, but can learn the same resiliency. Resilience from it, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, the fact that you still know it, you still know the teacher, mm. is obviously something that's that stuck with you. And um, in terms of the resilience. Um, I wanted to kind of get into your, obviously you then became an athlete, mm. became a professional ice hockey player. Now, now how was, how, how, obviously you're from Canada, so obviously it's easier to, to get, I, I would say easier than England. I don't think anyone plays as a kid. I mean, people do, but like not, sort of the majority I, I, sport. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll talk like ice, ice hockey is like yeah. football in Canada. Everybody plays it. Yeah. And I, I was, I was getting on to, to, to be a, an above average hockey player. I had a, a couple of, pretty big injuries when yeah. I was in my teens that slowed me down a little bit. Yeah. And once that goes on a, a record, then scouts won't, won't look at you or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, and you're yeah. like 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. And I had a, a problem with my hip and I lost, it was down in, a, in notes, you know, Nick yeah. has lost a bit of pace with his skating, but ice hockey was growing in this country mm. and I had a British passport cause mom and dad are from here. So my dad, it was my yeah. dad's idea. It was like, Nick, why don't you go to the UK when you're 18 and see what happens? Yeah. And it took me a year or two, but eventually I, I started playing professionally here. And, and what I mean professionally, it's like, yeah, I got some money, <laughs> um, got a little bit of allowance for, for living and everything and, yeah. and, and some money. And it wasn't 200 grand a week. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 200 quid a week, but it was considered, you know, semi-professional, yeah. professional hockey. Um, and it was amazing. I had some amazing seasons yeah. playing, playing pro hockey in this country when it was growing. And I became even more involved in it when I got offered a job to be a Sky Sports presenter, yeah. um, which I, I kind of BS'd my way into that. You see, Sharks, this is the thing, <laughs> right? Because I got an awful lot very young, but <laughs> yeah. I got it all through, through those, those manipulation tactics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a lot of fear in me, mm. and I felt like I'd obtained it kind of through fraud really because yeah, i was yeah. just bsing my way into this stuff and then i felt well, when, like when you say when you say the the manipulation tactics because obviously when yeah. manipulation has such a like crazy dark connotations to it it was it was a kind of like from from a young age we were able to essentially like you said bs or like uh just kind of were you over presenting yourself or, or was that essentially what you were doing or was I, it kind I, of like, I think I just had again, no, no real concept of who I was. Yeah. So I was always these images of me, but I knew I was a good athlete mm. and I knew I looked a certain way and I knew some girls found the way I looked appealing yeah, 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 yeah. so I could charm women. Yeah. And <laughs> like when I moved here, when I was 18 years old, um, people said, you know, Nick, go get a job. So mm. there was a local ice rink that had opened up. It wasn't, you couldn't play ice hockey there. Yeah. But I went down, I said, can I have a, a, a job? And they mm. said, well, we need someone to drive the Zamboni, the yeah. machine that cleans the ice. And I said, well, I can do that. I'm Canadian. Okay. And of course, so I, I didn't, I'd never been on one. I didn't oh, know where the key went to yeah, start, yeah, the, but yeah, I got yeah, a job. Yeah, and this yeah, is yeah. 1989, 12 and a half thousand pounds a year. Yeah. 
which was a lot of money back then. And it was enough to where people were like, you need to go get your own place to live. Yeah. So I went down and, and applied for a mortgage. And yeah. the mortgage advisor was a cute blonde woman. Yeah. <laughs> and I took her out on a date and I got approved for a mortgage. Okay. <laughs> so I got a mortgage and a job that I didn't really feel like I deserved, yeah. you know? But at the time, so that's what I mean about that's BSing it, and yeah, charm, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, and everyone yeah, would be yeah. like, oh, he's just charming. He's yeah, just charming. Yeah, 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 yeah. But really, this was just my way of, of getting things. And, yeah, and yeah. I don't think I was, I wasn't doing it for to be bad yeah, all from a bad place or malicious place. No, it's mm. just all I knew back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like actually... say, from it grew a lot of these imposter syndrome yeah. feelings and, and like I didn't belong. And then getting the job on Sky, mm. again, I, I had all this stuff. Yeah. But I felt like I didn't deserve any of it. Okay. And also very interesting in, um, in, in even the way that you speak um, and the way that you tell how you felt and how you were. It's like it's very... It's almost scientific, like the the terms, the um, like uh, the way you pinpoint and you pinpoint every action to um, a mental thought process to like a feeling as well. Obviously, some people when they just talk about how they did something or how they felt, it's just like yeah, I didn't really quite like it. But then, is, did that come from? It sounds very like almost therapy. I think it's, it's been it, like seven years of reflection. So I got, I yeah, got it yeah, sounds yeah. very yeah. like, 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 uh, like very self reflective, but also like, uh, I, I can't find the I, word. I th- for I'm it. used to telling the story, I think. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, like, I got sober when I was 45 years old. Yeah. So that was the other thing. When you feel like a fraud and imposter, I didn't drink or do drugs. Mm. I'm going back to the time I'm like my mid to late 20s. Yeah. I grew up in an alcoholic household, so I stayed away from that stuff. Mm. But then all of a sudden you had these huge fears of yeah. like not belonging, not being accepted, overcompensating for it. Ooh, and by, that was in your 20s. And that was in my late 20s. And then hanging out in Soho. Yeah. And then I comes, eventually mm. someone's going to offer you a line of cocaine and a martini. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that got me very fast. And, yeah. and within two years, I'd lost all that stuff that I had. Yeah. And I went on this journey of alcoholism that brought me down to these really dark, dark oh, places. Yeah. This is why I say at 45 years old, I got sober. Yeah. So for seven years, I've been sober for just over seven years. I've been, yeah. t- I've been, yeah. I've been healing. Yeah. And in this healing, you recognize that drugs and alcohol were not the problem. It was, mm. oh, eight year old Nick feeling scared, like this, yeah. you know? And then, so now I've, I've been able to heal. I've been able to process it and mm. I can, so I, I probably can just tell the story yeah, no, in, no, but in, like, in a way that's that, what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, t- I, mean, I, I tell we'll, it a lot. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll definitely come back to yeah. the, the other parts of the Soho parts because mm. it, it, it leads on to obviously you changing your life. But we, I wanted to get back to that, like sort of how, how old were you when you came to England? You say 18? I was 18, yeah. 18, yeah. yeah. So, and how long were you playing like hockey for? I played until f- I was like 26, 27 yeah. years old. And yeah. you felt that same sort of imposter syndrome? You know, like I I loved playing hockey because of the, that team atmosphere. Mm. And I had some really close teammates. Yeah. But I still always felt a little bit different. Yeah. And even in those environments where today people will say being on a team is the most important part of their lives yeah. and, and they reflect on it. And for me it was, but I still always felt like I didn't fit in. Mm. How comes? Was it because you're from a different country? Or uh, is it just no, a, there was, a, a, it was it's just an inner fear yeah. thing for me. You know, I think it, that goes right back to some of the things that happened to me growing up, is it, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, you should always feel like you belong in a team. And, mm. and I had great teammates. Yeah. There was no reason for me to feel 
Like I didn't like fit did, in, yeah. but it was just something in the deep pit of my stomach. Yeah. And I, if, if any of my old teammates ever heard this, they'd be like, Oh, I, I didn't really you did, you see it. Oh, you know, yeah. but I wouldn't socialize as much with them. Yeah. I think some people thought it was a bit of a snob. Yeah. Um, so maybe it was that aspect, but I was just scared. Yeah. I just felt like I didn't fit in. So I try to avoid a lot of social situations. That's really interesting that, um, and again, how a lot of it ties back into how you were as a kid. It's like I was—I read a book a few weeks ago um, called "People Change" by mm. Sarah Jafari, and um, a lot of that was this girl who now lives in London, and she has a lot of anxieties. But then you see the anxieties in chapters that she writes, basically going back in time, um, in as a kid and stuff like that. So it's kind of like the the reason why I'm, I'm i'm really fascinated by the way you tell your stories and the way you speak is because of it almost feels connected like you can connect the dots very well and uh, maybe i feel like it's something that i need to do i need to maybe journal down reflective thoughts going all the way back to then realize why i do some some stuff why i, I behave in a certain way or i do certain actions because then you can kind of map it out of okay, this fear came from this thing happening and it didn't just randomly come up. I didn't just suddenly get it from this age for no apparent reason. And I, I think, it, like I said, it, it's it's really refreshing for me to hear it like this. Um, and obviously you might say, oh, it's because I've told the story before, but I don't even think you realize how like incredible that is to be able to like find things that you can then connect because then you can you can work on it by understanding the root yeah. problem of it all. That's what that book's all about. That's what that book's all about, yeah. The yeah. book... Uh, Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate, Realms of the Hungry Ghost. Yeah. And, and this for me, like reading this book has been a game changer because I'm learning about like trauma. Yeah. Trauma not being the thing that happened for, for to you, people. Um, but trauma being what's happened to your body as a result of what happened to you. Yeah. And Gabor Mate is, you know, an expert at this. He's an amazing writer and 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 doctor and and therapist, and and yeah. he explains that you know about the the hungry ghost is meant to be the the addict walking the streets yeah. or the alcoholic, is that we're just hungry all the time yeah. and we're a ghost of our ourselves, mm. but hunger not necessarily for that alcohol or the drug, but for the effect. Yeah. And, um, and this is what I'm learning about. Maybe the things that happened to me could have been even in the, in the womb, you know, my mom growing up scared, Mm. um, moving away from her family, my dad, mom and dad, you know, so they immigrated in 1967 and it was just my mom and my dad and my sister who was two at the time, you know, to this small little town in the middle of Canada, Mm. with 300 people in it. Yeah. So, she was going to be, she was only like 20. Yeah. So she was going to be scared yeah, and lonely course, and yeah. frightened. And then she had my sister and, had, had, and I believe she had a miscarriage and then mm. she had me. Yeah. So things that ha- could have happened to my mom getting passed down through yeah. into, into me. Yeah. It's not necessarily the fact that I saw my dad, you know, do some mean things yeah. <laughs> and that was scary. And that's yeah. the things that I can remember. But I think what I've been, had my eyes open to is that, there's an intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Um, there's things that can go back, you know, literally generations yeah, that have happened yeah, to our course, ancestors. 
uh, that can get back passed down through us. People might go, this is a hocus pocus and, and tree huggy type, but this guy's a doctor and he yeah. can, you know, and it, it proves well, the things trauma, that, yeah, that trauma, that trauma happens to our bodies, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, um, so that's been eye opening for yeah. me. I recommend that book. And of course, yeah. 100%. And to move the, your story along mm-hmm. is fascinating. And then afterwards, so you had your playing period from like 26. So then after 26, will you, did you start getting into presenting then? Yeah. So um, I was I was finishing my last year at university yeah. in, uh, I think it was 96, 97 that I graduated. I heard 95. Anyway, mid-90s, we'll yeah. say. And Sky Sports had started covering the ice hockey. Okay. And I looked at the end of the, the, the credits and it said producer Trisha Tolchard. Mm. So I find, phoned up Sky Sports and this is yeah. the time when you can phone up a network and get through. And I said, can <laughs> I speak to Trisha Tolchard, please? Um, and she, she, they put me through to her line. Yeah. And I said, Trisha, this is Nick Rothwell. I play ice hockey for the Guilford Flames. Yeah. I'm doing a media class at university. Can I come and watch you make a program? Okay, yeah, yeah. So she was like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. Now, Were you doing a media class? No, because no, <laughs> I'm, I'm bullshitting, right? <laughs> I was doing English literature and history. Yeah, well, we the, it feels very like they catch me if you can. Guy. Yeah, yeah, you know. So I, be, I, and I got a, uh, an interview. Yeah. Well, I went in. I got them. I charmed them. Yeah. I looked a certain way, and lo and behold, yeah. the job came up, and I was the only one who made an effort to go into the office. So it was like call Nick, yeah. and then I became a ringside reporter there, and then and yeah. then I eventually presented the TV show. How was that period? How was that? It was awesome. Yeah. You know, I look I look back at it, and I was on. I was like in a way, I was. I was on top of the world. I mm. could anything I kind of imagined came yeah. to life. I started my own companies. Mm. Um, I was like, I'm going to move to London. I've got a flat literally across the river from where we are now. Yeah, I bought a Porsche from that dealership on the A4. Yeah, 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 yeah. I shopped on Salvo Row. Yeah, I dated pretty women. Yeah. I, I had all this. This life really pretty looked much good. what you'd expect. <laughs> uh, you know, the best person to live essentially. Yeah, yeah. but there was a scared eight year old boy inside of me. And I was like, I don't deserve any of this. But, and that's when someone introduced me to that, that drink and the drug. And Mm. and and that just just took all the fear away. It just took all the fear away. It was, it it solved all of my problems. It Mm. felt like I could fit in. And that was the idea of, of this is I was always chasing that connection that it gave me. And it it made me feel connected. And I think this is the, the, the issue with a lot of addicts and alcoholics is that we're looking for connection. Yeah. We find it in a drink or a drug. Mm. So that means that it becomes a solution to our disconnection. Yeah. And then we're always going to be searching for that connection again. Yeah. And then you go down the path of really becoming. Getting into it. it yeah. yeah. You know, it becoming a necessity in your life where, yeah. you know, to the end I was a 24 hour a day drinker. Yeah. No, but like you said, because to be fair, I thought, it was a bit because I said it exacerbated. But I thought the alcohol and the drugs would have increased your. Obviously, it would have made you feel a bit better. But I thought it would have also increased how you felt the imposter syndrome aside. But the fact that you said that what it did was it took it away. Do you know what it does. It, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cause like this. Oh. Yeah. When you take that drink. Yeah. So you're going, you're living up here. Oh, la, 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 la. oh yeah, yeah. got to do this, got to do this, yeah. got to impress you. Gotta, and then you drink, 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 sniff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was just this calming feeling. Yeah. Um, and then, of, and of course, you're in a nightclub or, or something like that. And then it's fun and you're yeah. dancing and you're, you know, it was fun for a few yeah, months. Yeah, of course. But then all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and you're like, I want to try, I want to feel like that again. Mm. And then you're having that early morning drink. Yeah. It wasn't so much drugs for me. Yeah, yeah, I mean that was part of it, 
it, but it was really the the alcohol and yeah. and I know now that alcoholism does run in the family and yeah and uh, I knew nothing about it at the time yeah but you know my dad died an alcoholic and yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I know of the processes of, of what alcoholism is if you want to know I can talk about that too yeah. but um, yeah no, I mean I don't mind well to be an alcoholic you have to have two things happen yeah. to you. you number one is when you take a drink you can't control the amount you take mm. so you have a drink and you want it to get more and more and more. It's, it's called an allergic reaction or an abnormal reaction to yeah. alcohol, which means that you're in about one in 10 people don't have the enzymes in their liver sufficient to break down alcohol mm. correctly. One in two people. About one in 10. Oh, one in 10. <laughs> and, um, and that means that there's a, a part of alcohol that's called acetone, mm. which is an acid, a corrosive acid that you can eat, take nail varnish off with. Oh, wow, yeah. And it sends a signal to the brain that it wants more of this. Yeah. But an alcoholic doesn't have the enzymes to break that particular element down. Okay, yeah. So you drink, you will process a unit an hour. Yeah. I won't. I won't mm. get through that acetone, and it'll send a signal to the brain saying, I want more of this. So I'll have another one. Yeah. And then another one. And yeah, then another yeah, one. Another one. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's one element, yeah, right? Yeah. But the other element is knowing you've got an allergic reaction and you cannot drink safely. You're mm. going to do it anyway. And that's yeah. called the obsession of the mind, yeah. which means I can have a week or a month off of alcohol mm. knowing that a drink's probably going to land me in, dr- in jail. Okay. All right. I know it, Yeah, but I'll do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is alcoholism. And it's, that's the bit that kills the alcoholic because yeah. you can have a period of time of, of, of being dry yeah. and away from alcohol and, sober and stuff. Yeah. But it's like, if I, if so right now I'm seven years sober. Yeah. If I had the thought, oh, sharks after this, let's go down the road for a pint. <laughs> guaranteed you're going home and I'm going to jail or to a hospital. Um, and that's the bit, like I say, that kills the alcoholic yeah. because we'll try to, we'll try to negotiate that so many times. Mm. And until there's and a solution, one, yeah. yeah, until there's a solution in your life and that's taken away from you, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's the, the, the pathway of an alcoholic. And that's where yeah. I was going was, was death. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, I mean, to have that level of retrospective is, mm-hmm. is, is, only incredible but it's also scary yeah to know like this thing here that not only calmed me down and not only you know in many in some ways was uh you know a benefit mm-hmm. but it has all of these drawbacks that you know yeah well happen. i mean alcohol is so readily available yeah i am not anti-alcohol yeah. i believe that for 90 percent of the population it's a social lubricator it yeah. can be a bit of fun but Roughly ten percent cannot drink it safely. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm always there for that ten percent to say, hey, do you know what? If, if if you have problems with your relationship with alcohol, yeah, then we can talk about it because yeah, there are solutions out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I do, and because this is about books, okay, yeah. and and fear, I do want to write a book. Yeah, and I'm in fear because of putting pen to paper and being judged. No, no, but no. I want to write a story, sharks, about. Yeah. To think about this, right? Why is it that, that one in 10 people cannot take mind-altering substances safely? And mm. I thought about it, and yeah. I thought about it. I was like, why? And then the name of my company is called Retribe. Mm. And what I really wanted Retribe to do was honor yeah. how we got to where we are. You know, we were talking before about the the, the ancient apo- uh, civilizations and, yeah. and the fact that we've been around for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. What we know is maybe the last 10,000. Yeah, but we've yeah, been yeah. around for hundreds of thousands, tens and tens and tens, mm. and we don't know anything about that. Yeah. But there's certain archetypes or parts of our DNA that, you know, maybe you were designed to be a writer or mm. storyteller within your tribe. Yeah. 
Um, and that's why maybe pen to paper works well for for you. Let's just uh, say, yeah, right? Of course, yeah. And and then maybe there are there are people in the tribe that were doctors and yeah. shamans and chiefs and yeah. childbearers and wet nurses and basket weavers. There were people that you had these designed roles to give purpose to your tribe. Yeah. And now, what about that ten and? that plant medicine was a huge part of tribal evolution yeah. and that they, that medicines and ceremonies were parts of tribes existence mm. and the relationship with the universe and with the earth. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, but what about the 10% of people that were really had bad reactions like I have with alcohol? And then I thought, well, what if there was a role within the tribe for sober people? Mm. And I didn't know at the time that there was actually a thing called, um, uh, trip sitters. And a trip sitter is a sober person who sits with people while they're having their ayahuasca experiences. Okay. And then I was like, damn, that was maybe my role in my tribe was to be the sober person. No, but what, so like, would that be someone that just watches over? Watches over when they're having their their ayahuasca experience (laughs) or their plant medicine experience. And I want to write a story. (laughs) I want to write a story about this young kid's journey into finding out that he was meant to be the sober one in his tribe. Yeah. So watch this space because being on this podcast is going to inspire me. Absolutely. To write this fictional (laughs) piece of a short story about how, um, within tribes, there were meant to be sober people and yeah. sober guardians, I call them. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm not, when, when I went to AA, people said, you can never drink again. Mm. That's a big, heavy thing, right? Yeah. But what I say to people now who, who qualify as an alcoholic, I say, it's not that you can't drink, brother. Mm. It's you're not meant to. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. So way of it's a gift. Yeah. Being sober is a gift. Mm. And that's how I look at sobriety today is that there's a pop up certain members of our population are meant to be sober so that we can help other people. And I think it was mother Teresa. I've heard this story in in the rooms that she said, I I love alcoholics because they are such friendly people and they're so willing to be of service to their fellow man. And that's where I find myself is that if I can be in a service and position of self-sacrifice and helping other people, I don't think about a drink. Yeah. I've not thought about a drink in over seven years, and it's given me purpose in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know? actually become the alternate yeah. alternative to take. I'm a, I have Help a purpose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, is the purpose, of course, the purpose yeah. aspect it's given, of it. me purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it, it is. is and on top of that, you writing the <laughs> the book as well. Well, now you have to keep me accountable. So yeah, now every to. month this I want to text you and say what chapter are you on? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's going to go out there. Where do you plan on starting it? That's I plan on starting. I've actually off. started doing some voice notes on it. Yeah, and uh, and I've got the storyline in my head. Yeah, I just need to start writing it out. Yeah, but but when are you planning to start to write? That's that's the that's main it. part. That, well, well, I'm gonna. You're gonna have to say next week for me. Then keep next me accountable. Week. Yeah, yeah. I've got. I've got to message you. I'm gonna okay. See if you if you yeah. actually start. That's a deal. Um, but one thing that I saw on on Instagram that I think was really powerful uh, was. You took a you had you took a selfie. I think he was in the office, and mm. I think you know which one. He was wearing a suit, and then you you wrote you built up the caption like. To be fair, you'd be a good storyteller because even the captions and you can only write so much and you build up well. He was like ah, oh, you know, when you talk about having yeah. that job, he was in Soho. He was, you know, essentially living a good life, mm. um, but he was just broken inside. He was drinking all the time, um, and then there was that period where you basically asked for help, mm. you know, and um, 
I always find that interesting in a way because obviously around you know men's mental health and all this kind of stuff here and asking for help and being in that position that that vulnerable position to actually be like okay yo I need help yeah how how did you get to like how did it go about from just being a thought to actually go okay I'm gonna go and do this I, what I was the steps you kind of took again reflecting yeah. I think that in terms of of young men mm. we don't have the processes of, of evolving into sorry of young boys becoming men mm. we seem to have lost that connection with our our our, our tribal ancestry of, yeah. of having rites of passage mm. um and i think that i was taught what what most young men are taught today don't cry yeah don't show emotion mm. it's a sign of weakness never ask for help you can yeah. sort out all your own problems. Now, my dad and my teachers and my coaches meant the best, and they were trying to build a tough character. The toughness, yeah, that's, right? that's what it is. But yeah. inside, I never had that ability to... Pr- so I knew I had problems with alcohol when I was 30, mm. but it took me 15 years yeah. of going to jail, countless detoxes, yeah. hospitals, two acute pancreatitis episodes, which can kill you. Yeah, And I still drank. Yeah. Right. Of me being beaten into this place where I think my ego was so crushed yeah. that I looked at another man in the eyes for the first time and I said, help me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was crushed. Sharks, yeah. you wouldn't recognize me. And yeah. this, this story is, is that this man brought me through this recovery process, the, the 12 steps. He told me I'm sponsoring men when I was finished and, and he kept on me. He gave me accountability in my life. And then the miracle is is that uh, three, four weeks ago, he flew to this country. So he, this was in Toronto. I got sober. Yeah. And, and he flew to this country, spent a few days with me, and then stood next to me as my best man at my wedding. Yeah. You know, and this is, these, this is a man who himself had his challenges, yeah, uh, yeah. but is now is extremely successful, could afford to have a whole week off work, yeah. to fly over to England, yeah. to sit next to some knucklehead who he brought through the steps, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and give a best man speech. Yeah. And these, I just think are miracles because, you know, in me having that vulnerability of being crushed to say, help me, I fulfilled his purpose. Mm. So it's like this kind of thing is that he yeah. helped me, but so I helped him in yeah. his purpose. Um, and we created this bond and relationship where we'll be brothers forever. Yeah. And, and like I say, he, he was my best man at my wedding three weeks ago. How about three weeks ago today? Three weeks ago today, yeah. yeah. Obviously, you was yeah, a married yeah. man. Married man. How's, how's that feel? Beautiful. Beautiful, huh? <laughs> it is like... Uh, but before we, sorry, yeah. before we get onto that, yeah. obviously, marriage is an amazing thing. Uh, my, my, friend, my friend messaged me today um, and because uh, I made a joke before. To be fair, I think I've made several jokes on here of the reason why our podcast took a hiatus was because two of our friends decided to get married and you know, just decided to pause everything because of it but uh no nah, that was just funny yeah. um, <laughs> but uh what was i going to say i was going to say that in terms of i even brought up the asking for uh, you know what it was too because of all this stuff going on with andrew tate yeah too and i think that there's this poisonous idea that going around society today of mm. what makes a man yeah and no, but that's what it is what my question was yeah. going to be it's kind of like because you touch on this uh, rite of passage um thing which was kind of interesting because it's like um as a society like for for guys for boys should i say um at what point do you feel like a man you know like what does it even mean mm. to like you know people are like oh you need to become a man you need to like but what does that mean because to be fair i feel 
the same way inside like that I did when I was younger yeah. and it's like I there 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 isn't there hasn't been a moment yet where I've woken up and I'm like okay I'm a man now mm-hmm. and it's just kind of is it is it then like it's it's so strange it's like what does it mean to be yep. an adult as mm-hmm. well is, is it is it the beard is it is it when you you're not able to run as fast like what actually makes you go or is it just the age is it a number i think it's i think there are we are meant to have certain challenges in our in our teens mm. um and i think that this is well documented in the evolution of tribes and our, our anthropology and how we got to where we are where we're like the, you know children 13 years old would be given put sent out into the forest to have vision quests yeah. and they were they were then at a point where like i can survive mm. And I do remember a time, and it's not the time that I want anyone else to go through, but yeah. there was a time I was 16 years old. I was starting to go to the gym. I could fight because mm. I went to boxing. Yeah. Um, and my dad got aggressive in the house, and I think he pushed me. Mm. And I was so athletic, I just took the push, and I slid across the table, and I landed on my feet, yeah. and I squared up. Yeah. And he just backed away. And from that moment on... Yeah. He never got aggressive in the house again. And he told me in later life, he said, Nick, you made a fist. And I was like, well, what? He goes, I knew you were a man then. Mm. And, and bless my dad, right. For all his, for his failings. And, and it was only when he had a drink for his failings. Um, he did say, he goes, Nick, my only job in life is to make you a better man than me. Mm. I'll get emotional here because this just happened. Right. (laughs) But, of course, but, uh, I I now I know he I survived alcoholism, yeah. and I know he'd be looking down at me saying I did my job, yeah. because now sharks I got these three young boys in my life, mm. and I truly believe my only job in life is to make them better than me. And mm. people are going to say, "What does better mean?" Mm. And I just mean they're going to not go through the things that I went through, but still learn the things that I learned, yeah. and no, without creating any trauma in their lives. So yeah, I'm getting emotional talking about know, my yeah. dad <laughs> because like he he was a good man. Yeah, of course, yeah. he was a good man. But it was that moment of him yeah. of him pushing yeah. that I made a fist. Now again, I don't want to recreate that with anybody. Yeah. But I also want to create. Cre- how how does it? You can build a 16 year old up, uh, year old up to feel like he's ready to protect mm. or he's ready to defend or yeah. he's ready to stand up on his own two feet. Yeah. And I think that can be done. Yeah. In, in ceremony, in, 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 in mentorship, yeah. in sports, where we can recreate that mm. without creating harm. Yeah. And I think that if children today can go, young men and women can go through those rites of passage today, yeah. then they're going to be able to recognize the BS that Andrew Tate's putting out in this world, mm. of saying this is what it's like to be a man and you need to be threatening. And you need to be, those, you, no, <laughs> but, you, but you do need to be able to stand on your two feet yeah. and have some resiliency. And that's why I loved meeting with you and talking to you about that over a year ago now talking about the poison that this guy was putting into this world you know and mm-hmm. that needs to be men like you creating podcasts like this where you can get through to other men and say nah, uh mm. compassion vulnerability love kindness yeah. treating women with respect yeah that is the way to manhood mm. that's the ultimate mm. goal essentially yeah um and uh obviously it's like uh, a lot of the points that I take from as well is from a religious perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like we see our prophet, uh, peace of us, as the ultimate 
man, essentially, the mm. ultimate role model. And and it's like when you hear the stories about him, he would you would cry. It wasn't like this tough macho man that's like you can't cry, you can't do this, you can't have feelings. It wasn't like the Jedi Order or anything mm. like that. It was like actually in touch with emotions and showing uh, mercy and compassion. And I feel like the whole Andrew Tate thing is is it's a weird one because with with Andrew Tate he he's going to be the Andrew Tate of like this timeline. Then there will be another Andrew Tate of another timeline because the way I see is everything just goes in circles where things go really conservative, then they go really re- liberal, then they go mm-hmm. really conservative again. And it kind of just, history just repeats and repeats and repeats. And it's like, the 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 big thing for me isn't even necessarily about what he is saying or what he says. The biggest thing for me is the fact that his comment sections, his the people that follow him and the discussions around him and all of this shows how many disenfranchised mm-hmm. boys that there are that, that lack identity, that lack a role model, that lack um that that lack something that makes them feel like this is what it means to be a man. And obviously if someone comes and they're showing you the keys to a Bugatti mm-hmm. and and you know they're, they're, they're good at martial arts and this and that. You're like, okay, maybe this is what it means to be a modern man, but there isn't necessarily the alternative. And I feel like with this podcast, it's, a, it's an interesting one because it's like, to get really honest here, yeah, it's like with books and stuff like that, sometimes you may not see it as the cool thing. And it's only when you get older that you kind of understand how important books are. Um, whereas, like, when you're a child, you kind of want the cool thing, the in. And, and a lot of the in and the cool stuff is usually against society. It's like counter, like, society and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you look at the music world, that's why, like, emo, punk, all of this stuff here was popular is because it was, like, anti-establishment and all this kind of stuff. So it's like this is... When it comes to like this podcast, for example, like it, it would have more of an effect on, I would say, adults rather mm-hmm. than than kids. But mm-hmm. my thing is, I always make content with sort of my brother's age group in the back of my mind, and he is like, well, actually, to be fair, he's a bit old now. He's like twenty, but he, he's that like kind of new generation that grew up on social media that kind of is in the know and what's happening and, you know, kind of making, I'm like, okay, cool. If he finds this entertaining, then that means there is essentially something to it. Um, but I do appreciate you saying that, you know, no, <laughs> it's I, pretty I, good. And, and I, I, I love that you have a, a role model in your, in your religion, in your spirituality yeah. that you look up to because yeah. we, we need that. You know, there yeah, are people course. out there that got, I think we, when we first talk about this podcast said and books, I was mentioned to Jason Wilson. Mm. You know, and he's written a book called Battle Cry. Yeah. And he's a modern, he talks about becoming, we talk about toxic masculinity yeah. in this, but he has this word comprehensive man. Yeah. So for, forget the real man, be a comprehensive man. And a comprehensive man is a man who's in touch with his emotions, mm. but can regulate his emotions, has the yeah. tools to know how to cry, to yeah. know how to hold someone when they're crying, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, to be compassionate and vulnerable and, and, uh, and show love. Mm. 
so I recommend Jason Wilson's Battle Cry. Absolutely. Um, amazing book. And, and he, again, the way he just says, I honor your tears. We're designed to tr- cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and to, to be able to, to, to honor men in that yeah. space and that when there's a, such a, a big portion of our, well, all of society has been a patriarch yeah. that we live in. So it's all, all been like we haven't honored the feminine. Mm. And, P- and I don't mean the woman, I mean the feminine, mm. the feminine energy, the emotions, the compassion, yeah. the nurturing, the creativity, the yeah. arts. These are, are sacred feminine traits. Mm. And we don't honor them even though they're part of us. Yeah. We're a balance of masculine and feminine traits. And, and we, we seek that balance. Yeah. But we've been so heavy in the masculine. People refer to it as the bird that's flying with one wing. The masculine wing's just been beaten away, yeah, beaten yeah, away. Yeah. And the, the, but the sacred feminine wing is coming out. Mm. And it's coming out in young men like you. And it's coming out in the influence that you're putting out into this world where more and more, one other man needs to hear this. Mm. Tell another man, a young man to hear this. Yeah. To say, do you know what? I just learned that, that feminine doesn't have to do with man or woman. It's a trait mm. to read up on it um, and to find out about masculine and feminine traits and then to seek and be curious. Yeah. And to question, and that's all I ask of anyone is be curious, mm. read a book, read a book. <laughs> find out. And if you, if you're like me and you don't read too well, yeah. read too good. I'm, I'm saying that on purpose, uh, get the, get the audio books yeah. or YouTube. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of these things that are out there that, that you can listen to. Yeah. Um, but I believe it's in the seeking of the modern day Renaissance man, the complete man, the man of seeking knowledge. Mm. Don't have to know everything. Yeah, yeah. You can know bits of a lot of things. Yeah, no, of course. You know? yeah. yeah. And um, to wrap this up as well, uh, in terms of seeking knowledge, of course, you've got your company, which is V Tribe, yeah. which is seeking your tribe. Yes. Um, and. Uh, would you like to talk a bit more about that? Because I don't know how to introduce yeah, it. Yeah, retrap. It was set up. It was set up in dessert. my personal experience. When I stopped playing hockey, I lost yeah. accountability. I got sober in the rooms of of twelve step recovery. I found accountability. I wanted to create an accountability creator. Yeah. Uh, so I created Retribe as a way for people to find accountability with a small group of people, three to six people. You know, they they say that you're the sum of the five people around yeah. you. So Retribe is a way to help you get those three to four or five other people around you who can hold you accountable mm. so that they can, you, you can say, Nick, you said you were going to start to write a book. Yeah. I'm part of your tribe now. So when are you going to start to write that book? Yeah. And then I'm like, I can't let sharks down. Yeah, yeah. You know? Hey. And that was the, the whole idea of having a tribe is like show up for your life. Mm. But have that account. Jason, Joseph Campbell, right? Be the hero in your own life. Yeah, yeah. But Frodo didn't do it alone. Yeah, facts. Right? He didn't go into that forest alone. Yeah. He had his little band of merry men, yeah, and he had yeah. his fellowship. Yeah, so that's what Retribe is all about, helping people find their tribe to then go through this transformational program that we've developed called Tough Through Tender, mm. which is a, a, a way to help build resiliency through compassion and vulnerability, challenging old ideas of masculinity so that we can honor our real humanness and bring out that sacred feminine in, in, yeah. in, in us and yeah. balance it with the beautiful masculine that we have. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's essentially retribe right now. Yeah. 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 Like even the way you said that, that was a beautiful premise in terms of like, oh, now he's part of the tribe. I can't let him down. That's a, that's it. That's a cool way. I mean, obviously a lot of people would need that in their lives to be fair. And I'm talking of tribes. You now, like I said, are married. Yeah. 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 And uh, how was that? How much time have we got? 
couple minutes to tell a story? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So at 49 years old, I'd moved back to London. Yeah. I was seeing all the friends that I was working with at Sky, their jobs, they were successful, they were millionaires. Yeah. And I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, you're a failure. Yeah. At 49 years old, four years sober. And then I, for something made me write down all the names of the people who had sponsored in 12-step recovery. Mm. And it, the number was around 60 people in four years, which is mm. a lot. And I went, wow, wow, mm. you've helped a lot of people, Nick. And I went and looked in that same mirror that the day before I was self-hatred. Mm. I looked in and I said, I'm proud of you, Nick. Yeah. For the first time mm. in my life, I said, I'm proud of you, Nick. Yeah. And I believe then I met that eight-year-old boy yeah. and I shook his hand. And I met myself deeply. And they say you can only meet someone as deeply as you can meet yourself. Yeah, of course. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, I met this beautiful woman. And she said, Nick, I've got three kids. Mm. And I didn't run away. (laughs) And she said, they play ice hockey. She's from the Czech Republic. So I went, hang on a second. When I did my, one of the steps with that guy who I asked for help, I had this fear of not being a dad. Mm. And he said, Nick, God is either everything or God is nothing. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And that fear left me then. And then I was like, this moment then came around here and I was like, oh, maybe I've been put the, yeah. to, I've been put here to save them. Yeah. And that gave me some bad feelings because I would put the super cape on, yeah. superman cape yeah, on. Yeah. And it took me to use tools, to pray, to meditate. Because yeah. um, I thought, you are you old enough to know Baywatch? I've just seen okay, some okay david running. hasselhoff on the beach beach running yeah. sees a woman and these three kids out in the choppy water and i turn yeah. and i look at the crowd and I, all these good looking people looking at me and i'm like are you seeing me i'm gonna go save them yeah, yeah. watch me go save them say, yeah. and i swim out i swim out i'm like i'm here to save you yeah and she looks at me she goes i'm a mermaid these are little mermen we're good we're good yeah but you better get back to shore or you're gonna drown out here She gave me that space and she said, you sort yourself out. I'm always going to be here. And I prayed and I meditated and it took me about a week of crying and asking mama earth. And I was crying and all of a sudden I was unblocked and I came back and things were different. And I was like, wow, I'm not here to save these three boys. These three boys are here to save me. Wow. 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 And they're my biggest teachers. Yeah. And I got to say that to them at my wedding yeah. I got to give them a little gift and it's beautiful yeah. and we are a family and I love these three boys who are biologically not mine but yeah. they call me dad mm. and uh, if people out there don't believe in miracles I am telling you I am a living miracle yeah. because I was dying seven years ago yeah. and I did the just the next right thing the next, the next right step. thing to yeah. ask for help to go through with a protocol of transformation to stay close to prayer and meditation um, to know that I am being guided and I am not the guider. And I think that's it. Just wake up every morning. And I say, I say universe, but I say universe, please guide me, mold me into the man that you would have me be. And I sit in meditation. And then from there sharks, how can I go wrong? Right. I'm asking for, for guidance throughout the day. Um, and and I'm, I'm a miracle today because I shouldn't be here. (laughs) Wow. 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 Nick. You've been absolutely amazing. And you know what? Like I said, you're probably one of the most wholesome people I've ever met in my life. Thank you. And um, I honestly wish you nothing but the best. This has been a fantastic episode. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on again. Thanks for having me, buddy. I really appreciate it. You're a beautiful man. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's the wrap. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Paper Trolls podcast. If you like this episode, please leave a review 
comment, like, and subscribe. And be sure to follow us on all our socials. Keep moving, keep growing, keep learning. See you at work.